Hi, this is Bryce from Shanghai Zan. Ali and I would like to wish you a very happy new year. And we'd like to give you a bonus episode. This is from the Reorient podcast, an interview with me on September 1st, 2021, and just recently released. The topic is why China has leapfrogged the world in digital marketing. Ali and I thought you'd find it really interesting, and we're going to put it on Shanghai Zan podcast this week. I strongly encourage you to subscribe to the Reorient podcast. It's a great show. You can find the Reorient podcast on all the notable podcast channels. And in addition, I will put a link to the podcast in the show notes. So enjoy the show, and we'll see you next week for a new episode of Shanghai Zan. Hello, and welcome to the Reorient Podcast, the show about international issues and international people with an Asian twist. My name is Jesse Friedlander. All right, everyone. Good day. Good evening, everyone. Today is the first of September, twenty twenty-one, and today I'm very pleased to have a very interesting guest, Bryce Whitwim,、uh, join us, who is an expert in marketing and advertising in China. Bryce, welcome to the Reorient Podcast. Thanks, Jesse. I'm really happy to be here. Great. Well,、um, so Bryce, I think people can tell from your name <laughs> and your accent that you're not originally Chinese, but you're、uh, you spent a, a couple of decades,、uh, even more, in in China and the Greater China region. But you're originally from, I believe, South Dakota. So maybe share with us,、uh, sort of briefly, how a, a young man from South Dakota, sort of unlikely journey to become a、um, advertising and marketing guru in China. Okay, so thanks, Jesse. I appreciate it, and I will try to answer your question in the briefest, most interesting way possible. Because any any time you tell your life story, you always、uh, <laughs> yeah. always this tendency to go on and on and on. And normally, my wife is next to me, and she'll kick me under the table <laughs> the so, me, and、yeah. send me like, "All、yes. right, that's enough."、Um, so yeah, so I I literally、uh, I was I graduated. From the University of Minnesota with a Russian area studies degree, I was a Russian guy.、Uh, I was unable to find any opportunities、uh, to go to then the Soviet Union, so a professor recommended that I go to China instead. And it turned out I found a teaching job in Beijing, and that was a really enlightening experience.、Uh, it wasn't a let's say a financially viable one, but it really essentially changed my life. And after that, I. Moved、uh, to Taiwan、uh, for about three years, where I studied Chinese, and later after that, I went back to the U.S. and got my master's degree, and that kind of started out my whole career plan. It was in my master's degree program that I found a love for marketing, or you could say I found that I wasn't very good at finance. So usually <laughs> at that time, you usually have this: you either do marketing or you do finance. And surprisingly, I was really good at marketing. So I immediately thought, well, that's what I'm going to do. So I went back to Taiwan after graduating, and I got a job at Nielsen, the marketing research company. I was pretty much in retail software.、Uh, I thought it was a very interesting chance to to really get into、uh, marketing and, and advertising. And I was there for about three years before I joined a company in Hong Kong that was. Primarily did、uh, retail displays and merchandising for for big brands like Coca Cola and Procter and Gamble, and then later I was in Thailand, and that was my real first advertising advertising job. I was at Lo in Bangkok for five years. After that,、uh, I was recruited to to China. For obviously at that time, my 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 Chinese was easily better than my Thai, and I took a job、uh, with Ogilvy in 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 Shanghai about two thousand five. And I've been in Shanghai now for almost 16 years, doing various jobs in advertising and, and marketing. I've always stayed on the non-traditional advertising side, because like in 2005, it was very niche. Most people in advertising business were doing television and print ads and doing the more, you know, Mad Men, Don Draper stuff. I was much more into digital and retail. I saw that as the kind of the future. 
In about 2010, 2012, the market flipped and suddenly the guys that were doing the digital and retail parts of the presentation to the clients, they got bumped up to the front seat and the other guys got kind of pushed back. And in a sense, it hasn't changed since then. It's still very much a part of the China market now, which is very much digital, e-commerce, social media, retail. So in a nutshell, that's my life story. That, that's a perfect uh, summary, Bryce. And one of the reasons I'm so excited to talk to you is because you have a really great historical perspective on uh, advertising marketing in China, which is you know the biggest, fastest uh, consumer market in the world uh, for the last um, you know, probably three decades. So um, when you you know arrived in Asia, obviously the U.S. Uh, has been the leader or had been the leader, I should say in you know, mass marketing, right? Because the US in a sense developed the idea of a mass consumer who you targeted to you know, in a, on a very uh, broad geographic basis. So the US was very innovative and very uh, had a lot of leadership in leveraging you know, mass communications and conducting mass marketing strategies. So could you share with us a little bit about when you first arrived in China, uh, to what extent were you deploying um, proven marketing advertising models, frameworks, templates from the U.S. into China, and to what extent even in the early days that wasn't the case. And then I'm sure it's, as you just mentioned now, and we'll get into sort of the digital transformation uh, and, 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 and the more sophistication of the China market, but bring us back to the early days of, of marketing advertising in China. Sure. So upon arrival, uh, I worked uh, in the department uh, with Ogilvy Action at that time. Just give us uh, an idea now, of the uh, arrival, like the timing, the year. Oh, sorry, it's 2005, end of 2005. And uh, at that time, our agency was specialized in retail activation, uh, which was more about non-advertising type of activation, either retail and some digital experiences. That's where our core focus was. So at that time, though, uh, advertising in China followed pretty much the same global model where you initiated a big idea through a campaign based upon an insight of a consumer. And then from there, you created an advertising campaign. 75% of it was on television. The other 25% was on non-traditional media. And then uh, magic happened. Consumers saw the ads, and they went to the stores and bought the products. At that time, it was clear that no matter what you did in China, you would achieve success. In other words, any good or bad ad would largely be successful because at that time, not only was the market opening up, but it, the market was expanding. So in tier one and the large cities were initially always the core focus in the beginning for most foreign consumer brands. But it became obvious that as the market as the market developed, that they needed to move beyond tier one to tier two and tier down to tier seven. So as a result of a distribution increase, brands saw increase in sales. So in other words, parallel to the marketing efforts we were doing, the brands were increasing their sales through distribution channels. So it always looked like the advertising was doing fantastic because the sale, the marketing people would come back from the clients to say, oh, my God, that ad achieved 30% increase in sales. Well, the reality is that the ad wasn't probably the result of those that success. It was the distribution. Nevertheless, brands started to grow. Yeah. Right. In other words, they were attributing the entire uh, amount of sales growth to a particular ad while ignoring all of the physical infrastructure and distribution logistics, which would make products available to more consumers to buy, thereby increasing their sales. Yeah, exactly. So um, I obviously, I can't discount to say that the ads were useless and had no, no purpose. No, that's not true. Definitely at that time, brands were starting to, to foreign brands definitely had a huge impact. And at that impact, 
started to, at that point in time, started to become evident that retail uh, and digital started to have much more of an important part in the consumer buying process. It wasn't just the TV and print ads, but it was also the other things as well. And in that context, China followed very much the, the global model, is that you needed to have an integrated marketing solution if you wanted to be successful in China. So that at changed, what point though, did yeah. you see, oh, sorry, did, am I interrupting you? No, no, go ahead. Okay, so uh, at what point did you see sort of China having its own unique approach to marketing and advertising where a um, sort of the Western American uh, template or framework was no longer effective in China? I think it was really when I would estimate around 2015 was when you started to see the transformation. That was really at the growth and development of Weibo, WeChat, and, and obviously Taobao. Uh, those social media on one side and e-commerce on the other, and when you saw them completely take off. And at that point in time, you saw the power of media being consolidated into the two players, Tencent and, and Alibaba, and to a certain extent, Baidu as well, which is known as the BAT. And they started to really gain power around that time. And it's that time you started to see a flux, fluctuation in media spend, moving from traditional television, print, radio, uh, all those things started to quickly evolve into the non-traditional spaces, the e-commerce, the social, the digital. And those things really started to flourish around 2015. So um, I think most of our listeners are, will be familiar with, um, you know, Tencent and with Alibaba and WeChat and Alipay these, and this concept of the uh, walled garden where you have a closed ecosystem that combines social media and payments and, and a lot of other things, which is very powerful. And in effect, China was the leader uh, in developing this. But when we're looking specifically at the concept of marketing and advertising, walk us through some of the, the, the key points of differentiation uh, from a, let's say, an advertising agency campaign when you're developing uh, something for traditional media, you know, television or print, what you used to normally do, to, and then moving into to the digital online world. I think the biggest difference normally is, is to start off with is if you look at a market like the United States, just as an example, uh, it's still, still media spends about 75 to 85% traditional television media. So in that sense that China is about 30, 35%, uh, 25% traditional media. And uh, as of like 2021, so in order to plan for a particular campaign, you have to be less reliant on, on a visual video advertisement than you used to be before. And in addition to that, that social media and, com and within not only in e-commerce spaces, but within the social media platforms themselves have been places where consumers become aware of products, they consider them, they find out information about them, and the key difference here is that they immediately can purchase them. So therefore, the role of marketing and advertising has become one that affects that type of particular process. And in order to do that, companies use a variety of different mediums and channels to be able to actually affect the target audience. If you sit through a global presentation, a global media presentation that features an American market, and a China market. The China market one will be 50 pages long, whilst the Western one will be 10 or 15 pages. Why? Because there are so many different points of contact that you have to connect in order to be successful. I did a research project recently for a major uh, computer company that makes uh, home printers. It turned out that the average Shanghai consumer will engage with 14 different channels, 14. 
in order to make that decision to buy that printer. That's completely insane. So from a planning perspective, you need to, I don't know, to be in 14, that's a bit of a stretch, but you need to be at least in most of them in order to affect that consumer buying mindset. And just to nowadays, maybe yeah. make the point, uh, sorry to interrupt, but to make the point clear, perhaps our listeners. So um, this contrasts maybe with the idea of doing one big uh, television ad and then being present, say, in a big box retailer like, uh, you know, a Circuit City or Best Buy, where they can find your product. In China, the consumer is going to be looking, at least in Shanghai, according to the survey, the Shanghainese consumer, just to buy a home printer, which is you know, not a huge purchase, is going to be referencing 14 different online channels. Is that what we're talking about? Online and offline online and offline channels and they will you you're at in order to increase your chances of making them leading to a successful sale to that consumer you need to be present in many if most or if not all of those 14 channels that's right the second second factor is that that 75 percent of chinese consumers don't trust social media ads and that what I mean is an a traditional advertisement. And as a result, uh, brands now are relying more on influencers, either either on on celebrity influencers, the ones you read about, or uh, uh, now what's as popular is key consumer influencers. I think it's KOC. called a key opinion consumer, KOC, key yeah, opinion that's right. consumers. Mm -hmm. KOCs now are being employed. Yeah. Right. So uh, uh, if I'm correct, an influencer would be like a celebrity who might you know, be in the arts and entertainment, whereas a key opinion consumer is is perhaps more of a normal person who uh, could like is really familiar with the particular kind of product that they consume. Most uh, brands, including the printer example that I just brought up, they will use about five or six levels of influencers. So the ones that you described are the very, very top. You probably use them on a shopping festival like Double Eleven, uh, the Singles Day Festival, or uh, a particular push to be able to create awareness. In the middle of that, there's a lot of other influencers, possibly people, uh, for example, people that are, are, are tech influencers. Chinese consumers buy printers because they want to print their children's homework directly from their WeChat on their phone to their printer. So obviously there could be educator influencers as well to say that this is the best printer to print Little Weiwei's homework. And then underneath it, you have these validated key opinion consumers who are the ones that say, oh my God, this is the best printer in the whole world. I love it. Just for more social validation. So it's a very complicated ecosystem, as you're highlighting, uh, in this new um, sort of social media digital economy in China. Just to maybe take one step back of thinking about um, sort of the theory of advertising or the utility of advertising, it can serve multiple purposes. Um, and you've alluded to this because on the one hand, we want to generate sales, which can be measured you know, on a daily basis um, and perhaps linked to a campaign. But on the other hand, um, if you have a brand, you want to build um, a brand equity, long-term awareness and a positive impression in the minds of all stakeholders, right? That could be not just consumers, but maybe, you know, government officials, um, the employees themselves, you know, potential um, recruits, you know, everyone to say this is a, a great company, a great brand. When you look at the dual roles of, of advertising marketing, how do um, executives weigh those two and balance those two? Because clearly, Brand equity is a long-term proposition, and many people may not be around to enjoy the benefits of the brand equity, and it's it's sort of intangible in a way, so it's difficult to measure. So how, how do people approach that? That's a great question, Jesse. I think that people approach it in the context that building brand equity is looking at the entire customer experience and how your consumer 
connects with your brand. And people always in China, uh, uh, my students, I, I'm teaching currently at NYU, my students, when I always ask them the question, what's your favorite brand? And nine times out of 10, Apple always comes up. And I think what Apple does very well is in that context of brand building. They don't really run lots of television ads. Yes, they have a, a Chinese New Year uh, film that they, they're famous for, but their brand equity is built upon customer experience. And that comes into different places within the customer journey. When you, for example, when you get, you have an old phone, you get a new phone, the transfer of your data from your old phone to the new phone is a pain point that most consumers would have in the past. In the past, I don't know if you're old enough, but literally transferring your phone book into your new phone was literally a nightmare. And oftentimes you had to retype in all your, your old data. That point, pain point has been fundamentally eliminated by Apple because of the iCloud and the ability to transfer all your data to your new phone. That is a customer, that builds brand equity. How you walk into the, the Apple store and how you interact with the Apple store. And the simple fact that even in China, when you walk in, I've seen people walk into the Apple store with problems with their Huawei phones and people in the store will help them <laughs> with their Huawei phones because Chinese consumers know that the level of service that's provided is extraordinary. And those kind of experiences will, in effect, build that brand equity. So it's not necessarily a, yes, it's an emotional connection, but Chinese consumers especially will emotionally connect with your brand, not only from, uh, from the heart, but also from the head. And they will see how they can experience that product through different levels of the journey, and they will base your brand equity on that. It's interesting to note that the, according to the WPP's Brand Z, the consistent number one winning brand in China is WeChat. That's the brand, a brand that doesn't advertise, a brand that, yes, it's ubiquitous with your life. 90% of consumers open their phones on a daily basis will use WeChat. But why is WeChat number one? It's because it provides an extraordinary experience. One might argue, as far as a social media app, the best in the world, undoubtedly the best. And so therefore, to Chinese consumers, that's a great brand. So this is gonna feed into a, my next topic uh, about sort of consumer uh, psychology or psycho, psychography, uh, whatever the right word is. But just on the point about the approach towards brand equity and near-term generating sales, do you feel there's a um, sort of Chinese companies have a significant difference in their approach versus, say, West, their Western counterparts? I think that they have the advantage of, I, I think that there's a lot of mentions in the, in, the, in the Chinese press about the fact that local brands understand Chinese consumers better than, than foreign brands. I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that what they do have, at least, I think that their clear advantage is that they have the ability to, they're more nimble and flexible. They can make quicker changes in production and they can react much quicker to market changes than let's say a global brand. Global brands are still, many of them are still burdened by their global, global entities, their global companies, their, their process in terms of how they make things happen. If you want to launch a new product in most foreign companies in China, you have to get permission from the center. And that could take six to 12 months. In that time, your competitors have already launched two or three innovative products immediately reacting to customer changes in sentiment, things that they've read about on, you know, through, let's say, in, on Alibaba's data bank, where you can find out how shopper information and shopper behavior will actually affect product uh, development. It's interesting how, for example, pet food in China. Pet food in China 
has taken anthropomorphic characteristics. Why? Because the people that are making pet food innovations, local pet food, are leading what normally what women are valuing in see valuable in cosmetic products innovations. So there is pet food in China that helps aging, that helps that that helps on uh, um, skin vitality. All these things are related to the fact that what women are looking for for themselves, they somehow transfer that to their pets. And it seems to be a winning combination because a lot of these brands tend to, are doing very well. That, my point here is that that type of nimble, quick reaction time is normally given to the local brands to, to, uh, to, to be able to take advantage of. Now, having said that, though, foreign brands, a lot of them are catching up. And they, you know, there's no question that a brand like L'Oreal, for example, or Estee Lauder, these, these brands are massive in China. L'Oreal spends a total of over 800 million euros a year on research and development. In terms of skincare innovations, no local brand can beat them. And it's clear that for L'Oreal, this market is an important market for them. So they move much quicker in China, arguably, and are, they're giving their local teams much more autonomy than let's say they would anywhere else. It's fascinating. And the uh, pet food uh, example was uh, super interesting. Um, one thing I hear constantly, and I've heard this for many years, you know, well over 10 years, maybe almost, you know, 15 years, is that the Chinese consumer is perhaps the most, amongst the most demanding consumer in the world. And there seems to be a lot of reasons, but that they're spoiled for choice. They have, you know, every company marketing trying to gain their attention and affection. At the same time, they're demanding not just about, you know, quality and timeliness and selection, et cetera, and on price. They're very price sensitive, which is a little bit counterintuitive. On top of that, they um, seem to not be loyal consumers relative to, say, their you know, international peers. And um, so, you know, a few questions about that, assuming, you know, those are fair characterizations. I mean, one is, is this sustainable or is this sort of the, pro the product of the China market still being, quote unquote, immature? Because once a market is, you know, kind of developed, it's more stable, there'll be fewer players, and then maybe the value will accrue more towards the companies and less to the consumers. Whereas, you know, in the early stages when everyone's offering, you know, try my product, free this, loyalty, you know, trying to win their business, the value accrues to the consumer. So the question is, you know, is that sustainable? Um, if, if, if yes, what, why or how? And if no, how do, you, how do you sort of see this aspect of the Chinese consumers um, sort of privileged position versus their international peers? How do, you, how do you see that developing? That's a great question. I think that there's certainly the challenge of, of achieving a Chinese consumer's loyalty on any, any type of product, brand, or service because there's simply so much freedom of choice. And you're right. People here are immensely selective about their products. And you know, you think about there's like 300,000 brands on Taobao. There's so much crazy choice in this market. It's the clearly that the one thing when I asked my daughter, who I just sent off to university, I said, what's the one thing you're going to miss about China? And she replied, Taobao. <laughs> and why? <laughs> because she can find any kind of style, fashion, any kind of like customization, uh, the products that she chooses, suddenly there's 10 or 20 others that pop up on her screen that can provide her more recommendations. She absolutely fell in love with the brand, the product and the experience here. And I think, I think that definitely that, that Chinese consumers are no different. Uh, even now with like platforms like Pingdouzhuo, you've got this amazing gamification about saving prices and this competitive nature of like getting all your friends to buy the same product so you can get a couple, couple 
couple of renminbi discount. It, it's unbelievable. It's so fast. I wonder though that I think that there will always be this kind of there always be this kind of environment in China. This will never go away. Frankly, because people here are addicted to it. They're addicted to this kind of fast-paced, product-centric, uh, freedom of choice lifestyle that they've created. And there are enough brands and competitors in each each category that will provide that type of type of opportunity for them. But I do believe there is hope, and that is that brand loyalty, repurchase, uh, connect, consumer connections. Uh, with brands on a longer term basis are definitely possible. And you are seeing much more of this in categories, which people now are starting to, to have a, a longer term relationship with their brands. Not every single brand has this luxury, but many brands do. And for example, Ikea or Starbucks, these brands have much longer term relationships with consumers. Yes, it, IKEA has thousands of competitors in their products, but despite that, they are recognized as the choice for home furnishing innovation and selection. Not necessarily the most premium. People know that now. Chinese realize that that IKEA now is more for is more for younger people, but the brand equity is very strong and they continue to flourish because of that. So in many aspects that the whole craziness of the market, the huge amount of, of products and selections has in many aspects confused and frustrated customers because they really don't know what to choose. They're looking for brands to guide them. And for the smart brands, you can do that, definitely do that. But that doesn't mean that China is going to get rid of the, the, the whole shopping craziness kind of market experience. That will stay. I just think that a few brands will stand out amongst the others. Most of the other brands will be commodities. They will just basically compete on pricing because they haven't been able to deliver that sense of differentiation to the consumer. So... Looking at the Chinese consumer, you know, if I had to sort of generalize the impressions, you know, I would have is, you know, that the, you know, you could say the Chinese would be more likely to, to be sort of nationalistic, uh, more likely to appreciate their tradition, their national heritage, um, respect for authority and hierarchy, um, probably in a way at the same time, community-oriented, but also aspirational status-seeking. And, you know, thinking about sort of psychographics of the, you know, how the marketer views the, let's say, the, the U.S. consumer, it seems to be that, you know, obviously would be more individualistic, um, maybe appealing to their rebellious side, um, maybe somewhat indulgent. Obviously, you know, today it's a lot about sort of diversity, uh, you know, different types of communities as opposed to kind of a, a more sort of homogenous, you know, uh, idea. So there's a lot of differentiation, you know, of groups and things like that. And perhaps maybe, you know, maybe there's some other aspects in there, maybe some sort of neuroticism or something else. I'm not sure. But when you think about the psychographics uh, of, of the two, how would you contrast, uh, you know, in, on a generalization, the two, um, the two types of consumers? I think that there's definitely some similarities and differences. I think it's very difficult, though, to generalize psychographics in China because it's such a big damn country. And with one billion people, you have definitely different types of psychographic profiles that would literally appeal to almost any brand. And then you think about those segmented profiles could be, you know, the size of Switzerland or maybe even the size of Europe. You've got such opportunities for, for different targets to be able to appeal to them. It's very difficult and a challenge to, to be able to, to generalize, to say, oh, this is, this is the way consumers but if are. I could, 
your point is well taken. If I can just interrupt for a moment, but clearly China is a much more homogenous society than the than let's just say the United States. I mean, you you know, it's one effectively one race speaking, you know, one language, you know, all you know, respect for one culture, you know, one party system, etc. You look at, I mean, I, I mean, it goes without saying, the United States. We have a lot of different languages being spoken, a lot of immigrants. A lot of you know different skin colors and races and religions, etc. So I mean, you can't. There's no comparison, right, in terms of the the level of diversity. No, you're right. I mean, there are a lot of homogenous aspects to psychographics here, and you're right that the respect for the family, you know, recently uh, strong nationalistic uh, tendencies, a kind of a refresh of Chinese culture and the appreciation for things Chinese. Uh, which really we hadn't really seen in the past, but now seems to be much more prevalent. I don't know if people really necessarily understand it, but they seem to react positively to brands that have effectively crossed that line. And I think to some extent that a lot of a lot of foreign brands are doing very good in those those particular psychographic spaces. There's no question that to be able to communicate in to to get your brand across in China is to respect those psychographic differences. So I guess what I'm wondering is from a marketing perspective, like you could almost say, uh, again, we're generalizing here, but you know, the US uh, from a marketing perspective seems to emphasize this non-conformist spirit, right? Be yourself, be your individual. No one tells you the rules, right? Make your own rules, you know, just do it, right? Whereas in China is much more conformist. It's about understanding what the rules are, the unwritten rules, and following them. So, as a marketer, how do you appeal? I mean, if if everyone's kind of the same, I mean, I don't know. Does that make the job of a marketer easier or or, or more difficult to sort of tease out? Because the, at the end of the day, the consumer is an individual making individual decisions. So you kind of want to speak to that person in a in a way that really motivates him or her so how do they how do they do that in a place like china i think it's back to my first point in that you definitely there are some foundational psychographic elements that every marketer has to respect and then i've mentioned those importance of the family importance of the government and the importance of the country and points of history but outside of that pretty much anything goes okay and within that context of the individual and this rebel and being myself, those, those are really common elements within Gen Z in China. Those things about, but when I talk about being rebel, that doesn't necessarily, you don't go to the extreme, let's say, in, as you might be in the West, is that, oh, let's grab a protest banner and walk out there with Kendall Jenner in that protest and grab a Pepsi and we're going to celebrate our own individual freedoms. That's definitely, you won't go there. But having said that, there is, let's say, a layer around that individualism that you can go in China that does necessitate a message that allows people here, young people, to say that I am my own person. I have my own choice. I can do what I want. These are very much common elements among Gen Z here. Conformity is not necessarily what's often being expressed by your target audience. They still want to embrace some of those same characteristics that you mentioned among Western consumers, except you have to play within the foundational elements that I mentioned, family, country, history, these things you have to, to abide by. But aside from that, the messages are quite similar. So is there, are there archetypes, if that's the right word, uh, in China that sort of define, you know, on an individual basis, the aspiration of the, you know, the average Chinese? And I mean, you know, using the sort of the American sort of examples, right, that, you know, were presented, you know, with uh, the Marlboro Man or, or um, you know, Michael Jordan or Michael J you know, Jackson or, um, I don't know, maybe it's, it's George Clooney or someone like that who just represents something that a consumer says, I want to be like him or her. And so you can really leverage that in, in many ways. What would be the archetype in, in China? I think that 
yeah, there, there, there's definitely exactly those type of situations here. I think that with a slight difference might be about the importance of, of that, especially towards young people, the archetype of a person who is full of life and experiences and is willing to go out and try new things and experience things as, as greatly as possible. But you still have the traditional archetypes here. You have the successful businessman. You have the aspirational success. In that sense, Chinese and Americans are very similar in that sense. China. Are there likes- any, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but are there any sort of specific individuals that come to mind who, who are sort of held as um, sort of representative of all that's, you know, great for a you know, Chinese consumer? Well, they change a lot uh, depending upon who's <laughs> in favor not. and who's not. Uh, right. Uh, for a long time, Jack Ma was one of those people. Uh, that mm. was definitely someone that people aspired to. Uh, Chinese also uh, admire w- Western archetypes as well. One of the reasons that Tesla is doing so well in China is that Elon Musk is, is a very popular person in China. Uh, so th- those type of archetypes, those, and I, I believe that in that sense, China, Chinese are very similar to Americans, that both countries have this blind belief that if you work really, really hard and you study and you work your ass off, you too can be successful like Elon Musk or Bill Gates or Jack Ma. And we, we have all, both countries have this blind ambition that, that poor people can be risen from the ashes and be successful. I think it's the one common trait that both countries have. <laughs> Well, that's actually a great segue to, to my next question is, um, you know, we, we've known for a long time that China has, um, you know, it has a lot of, you know, sort of different levels of development within the country. You know, you go to a place like Shanghai, and in many ways, they far surpass, you know, the, the, the most wealthy and biggest cities in the West. I mean, they're, you know, incredible, uh, particularly Shanghai and maybe Shenzhen and to some extent Beijing, right? These are the, the quote-unquote tier one cities in China. And then we're told about tier two, tier three, tier four, and as he's been going down to tier seven. So to what extent are, you know, it, it, we know that China has become much more urbanized. Um, you know, it was only 20 years ago that something like 80% of the people lived in rural areas, and now maybe it's only like 20% or something. I mean, it's been a huge transformation. So even in places that used to just be countryside, now they're living in cities, they're living in high rises, they're connected to the internet, the, the chain stores, you know, the same restaurants and shops are in probably most cities around China now. So do you think that we're sort of overstating the difference in the mentality of the consumer in a, in a say, a lower tier city versus a higher tier, or, or are those differences still incredibly big? Not just the spending power, but the, the, the mindset. Yeah, I'm glad you said that, Jesse. I, I tend to, to think that we're overstating it. I think that, yeah, when I first came to China, there was a huge difference. And to a large extent, there's still uh, those existence, in existence. There was still a large portion of the Chinese population that will never get to college that they will never, uh, they'll never ever get to a tier one city. And I'm talking about 600 million people. It's not a small number. So there are clear differences, but from a marketing communication standpoint, what's happened that's really made a difference is social mass media, uh, e-commerce. Now, literally you can, anyone, any consumer can become aware and buy a product no matter where you are in the, in the world. It's kind of amazing let's say about, let's say six years ago, I worked on the Chanel business. And I remember the day they finally got their e-commerce site up and running. Now you, you could imagine that, that the luxury brands at that time were late in the game and getting into e-commerce because they thought, goodness, someone buying one of our products on a phone is not luxury. So we can't go there because it's going to damage our brand reputation. And only going to the store can you experience Chanel. Well, they set up an e-commerce platform and they like literally in a month increased their sales by 95%. It was outrageous. 
Why? Because all these people in the small towns are buying Chanel. They can't get into Beijing or, or, or Hangzhou or Wenzhou or Shenzhen to buy the product. They're buying them online. So I think that as a result of that fluctuation in, the, the, in, in e-commerce and being able to buy any product, the distribution of products became completely available throughout the, the country, dramatically changed things. And normally now, I don't know if McKinsey still goes by their tier one, tier five model, but most companies now see elements of wealth in all tiers from tier one to tier seven. And those, le that level of sophistication exists at a very, very low tier level. Now, the differences really come in the middle class when you're looking at differences in income levels. And when you're talking about certain products or services, then you're certainly talking to a different, more informed public when you're talking in big cities. For example, international education. What options do Chinese parents have to send their kids to, uh, to, to go through the university Gaokao uh, system, which is the Chinese examination after you finish high school, versus an international opportunity through IB or A-levels or AP courses, those, that type of knowledge and is much more prevalent in the bigger cities because simply that they have more choice here as opposed to those other cities. So there's, there's a difference. And then income also plays a part as well because obviously if your overall income is lower, then those considerations will not appear to you. But if those are eliminated, then certainly people have a great deal of more freedom of choice or equal freedom of choice as they would in the big cities. You uh, you, you mentioned uh, I think Gen Z um, earlier. You know, in terms of uh, you know perhaps be more individualistic in a way. Um, the I'm curious, and we know that you know around the world, sort of the you know Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z we're seeing a big uh, change in psychology to a large degree based on how much digital interaction they have, you know, at what stage in their lives and Gen Z being sort of the digital natives where they're sort of handed a digital device when they're in the crib, some of them, right? And so they, for them, there's sort of, for many Gen Z, there's sort of a seamless uh, online to offline kind of life for them. And that this was the case in the West, in this case in China. I'm curious, um, do you see that the sort of how Gen X, Y, and Z, how do they map onto their Western peers? Would a Gen Z in China be much more similar to a Gen Z in the United States, you know, then maybe more similar to Gen X or, you know, uh, or baby boomer in China? Or do you feel that there's still a, a very big difference between Gen Z in China versus, say, one in the U.S.? Um, I think there's a lot of similarities. Um, I know that, that most strategists will tell you that there's a huge difference. But in many cases, I think there's a lot of similarities. I mean, social recognition. That's a, that's a common thing. That's definitely a common uh, commonality amongst Gen Zers in China. I think that some of the some of the other elements that come into play that make Gen, Gen Zers in China different is I think the need for is that sense of individualism about trying to not only create experiences unique to them and to receive that social recognition from their friends, but also that products and lifestyles can be created for their, their own personal benefit. And that personalization is a huge thing in China for the Gen Z crowd. Now, how do brands, and if you remember in our previous conversation, we talked about the massive market opportunity with hundreds of thousands of brands competing for Gen Z spend. You can appreciate how they can become individualistic in that context because they have so much more choice than let's say Gen Zers in the West. They actually can able to select products or customize experiences just particularly tailored to them because there's just so many of them out there. And as a result of the flourishing market economy and the e-commerce economy, 
that's available to them and which they're very much accustomed to, they can create those customized experiences much easier than, let's say, their Western counterparts. So do you feel that, a say, a Chinese Gen Z has more in common with the Chinese Gen Xer or with the U.S. Gen Zer? Mm, that's an interesting one. I think that they have commonalities with the Gen Xers in China, certainly. Love of country, need for, need for that social recognition. I don't think that's, that's not in, in Gen, Gen Xers as well. I think the degree of digital education and the ability to use platforms and channels in a fluid way is definitely much more cognizant of Gen Zers and probably amongst Chinese Gen Zers more, more, I would say at a higher level than, than their counterparts in, in the West. And the reason for that is not necessarily because of the sophistication of the consumers, it's the sophistication of the platforms that allow them to have this kind of interaction in China that Western platforms don't allow them to have. You, you simply cannot, in, in the US, go onto any platform, watch a live streaming product demonstration and freely interact with the person that's doing the demonstration. Yes, you can say, well, I've seen that. But in fact, in China, it's happening on almost every product category right now. So the, the fact that people have, have become accustomed to this, it, and especially with Gen Zers, it comes natural to them. They're much more fluid than the Chinese Gen Xers. But in that context, from a digital IQ step point of view, the platforms have risen them higher, I would say, than their Western counterparts. That makes a lot of sense. Some of the things you alluded to in this conversation and just you know what I've garnered uh, over the years is that for the Chinese consumer, maybe France and Italy still have a lot of aspiration for their rich heritage, the, you know, the craftsmanship, the sense of fashion. Uh, the United States, perhaps for its innovation, right, and its you know incredible brands and unique you know uh, new products. I believe, you know, Korea and Japan, you know, within the Asian context, obviously used to be far ahead of China in the level of wealth and sophistication of the consumers and of their companies. And so the, I imagine they had a lot of aspiration. And I'm wondering today, to what extent do the Chinese look towards, you know, the Japan and Korea or some other countries also as uh, sources of inspiration? and as an aspirational from a brand perspective? I think that there, it depends on the level uh, and the type of consumer you're talking about. I think that if you talk to college-educated tier one, tier two type of consumers, young people, they still have an infatuation with Japanese and Korean pop culture. And they still love the soft power that, that these countries provide. Where they're excellent at it. And in my opinion, frankly, much better than China is on that. And th that will definitely influence them. But I don't know in terms of the masses, if you say overall in terms of the larger body populace, how, how much influence that these places have. But I would say that it does have an influence. It just trickles down. So you may have, you may have certain cultural aspects that are appreciated by, let's say, more urban elites or urban younger people who have a much more international perspective and their opinions and choices and products will ultimately affect trends and local brands will pick up on that and they will move in that direction. They may give it Chinese characteristics and they might say this is a Chinese thing, but the reality, it came from Korea. Come on, let's be honest. You know, but yeah, I think it's it's a bit easier for the Chinese, obviously, to uh, uh, what's the word to localize a uh, a brand from another Asian country uh, because it's you know already sort of within their cultural you know larger realm, and and that's maybe one of the reasons too that it's uh, if you are a, a consumer marketing company, it might be easier to sort of 
transpose um, your products or concepts from a place like a Japan or Korea into China because the consumer will be naturally perhaps more receptive from a, a cultural perspective. I think it, I think that was the case maybe like five ten years ago where you saw mm -hmm. you saw that trend where brands that would take their their Japan products and then launch them in in China. I I know that uh, for example the Gap. The gap to you and me as Americans is is sweatshirts and jeans with and the sweatshirts all got gap on them. Whereas in Japan it's kind of a it's a kind of a, a, a price conscious fashion brand. And so when they launched here they took a lot of that, a lot of those little traits and elements from, from Japan. But you know what? I think now it's pretty much pretty much given that you cannot rely much on those Asian countries to adapt. You really have to be able to make it work here. I think even to a large extent, the cosmetics brands always used to be this whole tradition that, oh, well, skin types and, and uh, choices of, of colors and fragrances, there's much more common with the Asian countries. And that's probably where the places that you have to go. But you know, the reality is, is that still in terms of the foreign brands, uh, there's still an American and French brands, they're still, still doing very well. And, and that is because they've li literally used, they've adapted well to, to the, the taste. But at the same time, they haven't caved in as well and just developed like Chinese made products. There's been market for a hundred different lipstick colors that MAC provides. Yes, some Chinese consumers want to have more than five different colors of lipstick and MAC provides them that. Where, are they developed for China market? No, they were developed in New York. But certainly that as China becomes more globalized and people are travel abroad and they're shopping more often, they become much more exposed to these things and they start taking them at, for themselves. Great segue to my next and maybe last question. We're in a period now, obviously there's this global pandemic, but there's obviously a lot of tension uh, between China and the West in general. Uh, many countries, and in, in, including some of its neighbors. So people are not traveling. Uh, as you know, it's almost impossible to travel uh, in and out of China. And, um, and there's a background now of this idea that maybe supply chains and investment are, are sort of deglobalizing and, and moving you know, more towards you know, their home markets. So um, I'm curious, you know, from a Chinese consumer perspective, I could imagine on one hand, if they're nationalistic, this is even more reason to, you know, only want to consume Chinese brands and, 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 and uh, assert your know, Chinese-ness. But I could see the opposite being true of saying, wow, we really can't travel now. And I really love having, um, you know, connection to the rest of the world and different cultures and other brands. So I even want to more now, you know, consume uh, other, you know, foreign uh, international brands. How do you see things evolving over the next uh, 12 months or so? Yeah, it's really a sensitive time. I think that there's certainly, I think there's, there's a couple aspects to it. First of all, yes, there's a huge influx in, they call it Guotao, the, in, the local brands. And the ability to them to to actually appeal to a larger target audience, I think that nationalism has helped somewhat. But the reality is, Jesse, nobody buys a product just because it's made in China by Chinese consumers yeah, by China. It's not necessarily the the biggest strongest aspect of your marketing campaign. If that were the case, then everybody in China would be using Huawei, and nobody buy an Apple phone. But the reality is Apple had one of their strongest quarters last, last quarter in China, and they're doing incredibly well. But at the same time, there are local brands now that are extremely sophisticated, and they have great, they're building, they have amazing brand equity, they have great customer experience. I just shared uh, with my students some of my favorite local brands, like Neil, the e-car e brand, Weilai Chita, the Neil car, it's a fantastic car. They have not only beautifully designed cars, but they have great customer experience and they've established this real connection with their, their customers that you know you don't really find with mo like Ford or Buick or, or any of the other uh, international companies. Haiti, which is the, uh, the 
the cool like bubble tea chain company based out of Shenzhen. Uh, it's an amazing brand. Uh, they've really, really connected well with co consumers. So I think that those brands will, will actually, in that context, uh, the Chinese consumer will win because they effectively have a lot more choices. They have both international and local players. And I think at the end of the day that consumers don't necessarily choose brands because of political reasons. They buy brands or in, engage with brands that they like and they have a, a, an emotional connection to them. And that cannot necessarily, in China at least, I find, be upset from a short-term type of political incident. I think people still tend to, they love Swiss watches. They love German cars. Uh, they have love affairs with certain types of products, not because they're foreign, but because they're just great. They're the best quality products. Now, if someday a Chinese brand is the best, has the best watch in the world, then yeah, people won't buy Swiss watches anymore. But until then, they're going to still buy Swiss watches because they know they're good. Yes, uh, no, it makes sense. I was just curious that, you know, if people are not going to be able to travel as much anymore, whatever that, you know, through consuming, oh. uh, that's a kind of a way to kind of feel like you're experiencing the world a bit more. And a sophisticated no, consumers right. probably want to feel like they're getting the best of what's available on planet Earth. Yeah, sorry, Jesse, I didn't, didn't bring that. I think one of the one of the aspects that brands, especially luxury brands, they have found out is that that people become exposed to them in duty-free shops when they go to France, when they go to they go to Chandelier and they go into. I mean, it's no question that the Louis Vuitton store has a WeChat QR code on the front door, and half the half the, the sales staff are speaking Chinese. So I, I totally agree with you. One of the amazing experiences uh, that people have uh, traveling abroad is shopping, and they become exposed to a lot of these brands and things. And certainly, I would say. Uh, amongst my, again, this is not a representative survey, but I would say that people are missing it terribly. And they are, you see lines uh, in outside of like luxury shops in, in Shanghai. The Hainan Island duty-free shop has had incredible growth this year. It's outrageously high. So yes, I think there's still this sense of need to travel. But, you know, people like people on COVID, they make adjustments, they make, they, they change, they they realize that if they can't travel, but they still have the ability to learn and understand about new brands. And there's a lot of ways now in e-commerce that these brands can, can now come in and connect with Chinese consumers. Uh, you don't have to get on a plane to go to France. Uh, you, you can have, in fact, there's, I'll tell you in Shanghai, there's at least five different French cheese like shops that do total WeChat online ship product selection and shipping to your home. You would be amazed at what you can get. Even French people are blown away by it. They can't believe it. <laughs> well, um, it's, it is, it's, it is impressive. Uh, I mean, it's, it's really, it's incredibly impressive to how quickly uh, China's consumer market has modernized from a very low level to now be not just on a par, but surpassing, um, you know, its developed country, you know, uh, peers. It's uh, it's it's really amazing, and you've been you've had a front seat to it, Bryce. So um, before we wrap up, do any sort of last comments or points that you know think are worth making? Uh no, I, I thank thanks for uh, thanks for chatting, Jesse. I hope that the listeners have found this informative. I think more importantly, I hope that people appreciate the 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 fun and excitement and the challenges that China faces, and that the current China as it is now will easily not be the one that we'll talk about in the next five or ten years because that will be a completely different one. That's the one thing Absolutely. that I've learned is constant here is change. That once you think that you've understood the market wow, suddenly there's like this totally new thing and everybody's like running to it. And suddenly, oh, that old way of like buying on Taobao, that was, the, that was like, old, you're old. <laughs> this is the new way of doing things. So I, I, I've seen it happen so many times. So I look forward to having that conversation again with you. 
and uh, in five years, and we can talk about, well, what, what's changed? Let's reflect on what we found was totally different and how we were so wrong about China. <laughs> well, I look forward to it as well. And I would say the constant isn't just change, but it's rapid change. And, and that's what you were, it is rapid change on a, a mid-scale. Right. So the, the quantity of change is just mind boggling. Well, well, Bryce, it's been uh, it was it was a lot of fun for me. Uh, you have I mean, it's it's it is it is a lot of fun. It's fascinating. And I look forward to speaking to you not in five years, but a lot sooner than that and uh, touching base again. So thank you for being a, a wonderful guest on the New York podcast. Thanks, Jesse. Speak to you soon.